Welcome to the White Coats on Call podcast series brought to you by the Medical Society of Virginia Political Action Committee. These first four episodes of the podcast series will share the most important issues facing physicians for the 2018 General Assembly session. Each episode features an interview with a key Virginia physician legislator. I'm Sarah Rose Wells, Assistant Director of Government Affairs, and you're listening to episode two of the series featuring Senator Siobhan Denevin. Hello, uh, my name is Ralston King. I'm the Assistant Vice President of Government Affairs here at the Medical Society of Virginia. Uh, thank you all listeners and, and, and watchers for um, uh, tuning in. Uh, I'm here with uh, Senator Siobhan Donovan, a OBGYN here in Richmond and a uh, member of the 12th District, which covers parts of Henrico and Hanover. And we welcome you. Thank you so Thanks. much for, for joining us. Um, I first wanted to just start off uh, and, and kind of ask you about uh, your involvement in organized medicine, particularly with the Medical Society of Virginia, and how you got involved prior to even your public service life now. And if you could just tell us a little bit about that, that'd be great. So I, uh, I really became involved in medicine because I always wanted it to be the best that it could be. And it started just locally at my office, whether I was helping with responsibilities for marketing or making sure things were going right in the office, but also in the hospital, started with patient safety and joining other committees and working to kind of make things better. And that has a tendency to escalate. And so mom always taught that it was not okay to be a complainer. If you recognized a problem, you had to be a part of the solution. So I guess I was a part of enough solutions that Claiborne Irby and Barclay Zimmerman, two of my mentors came to me and said, hey, we'd really like you to help us out with RAM or MSV. And they're the ones that asked me to first run and become involved. And I was so glad they did because I think that when you're in clinical practice, you have a tendency to get very focused on your patients and your labs and your operating room and even your hospital and your families. And so sometimes you just can't pull your head up out of everything you're doing to see what's going on. And being a member of MSV really taught me that there were things happening that I could either be a part of or not, but they were going to shape. Right. how my, my practice played out and how right. my future played out. And so awareness was the first step to me saying, okay, well, you know, how does that affect me? How can I affect that? And so MSV is really the, the start of it all. And then, of course, I became involved in the legislative committee and we looked at legislation. I went to White Coat Days and yeah. was involved in other governance decisions that we made and even marginalized as a member of the board on the first nurse practitioner negotiations we had to kind of reframe how we were going to define that collaborative. Right. So all of that really um, kept me on the cutting edge of what was happening in medicine and I think had I not done that I might not have run for office. Right, right. And then to that point you ran in 2016 I believe. Um, 15. 15. Mm -hmm. And um, now you're on the COPN work group, Joint Commission on, on Healthcare, uh, you're part of the uh, Education and Health Committee, right. Finance. What have you learned over these last few years uh, being in the Senate? Uh, and, and maybe not just healthcare, but everything that you participated in, local government, a variety of different uh, committees. And, and what, is, what has been this new um, wave of information that's kind of flooded your mind with things probably you didn't even see as a physician? It, it, it is overwhelming. I won't kid you. Now, of course, you got to keep in mind when I ran for office, I said, this is this I don't know everything but this is what I bring to you mm -hmm. and that is that I have a defined set of skills for looking at problems finding solutions 
and getting people to agree to those solutions and work together. I mean, that's what we do as physicians every day. We diagnose, we figure out, we ask the right questions, and then we, we negotiate and persuade the patients to get on board with the plan that's gonna work. Right. Right. So that's what I've been doing in the Senate, and after two years, I'm not sure you wanna know everything <laughs> I figured out, but some big overreaching kinds of uh, analysis are that the state is way, way, way behind. And it's it's sometimes really scary for me. Yeah. We don't have any data analytics. Think about being a doctor or a hospital or MSV without knowing what your metrics are and being able to overlap those from two different silos and see what the best decision would make. I cannot overlap data from criminal justice mm -hmm. and DMAS on the opiate crises. I got to be in a silo because we can't do that in the state of Virginia. Other states can, but we can't. Um, the the way that we are overwhelmed with the cost of Medicaid is really terrifying because, for instance, one of the things that that find it seems to be the most baffling to me is that you may or may not know we have nine hospitals that the state runs. They're all mental health hospitals. Six of those nine hospitals run on paper. Right. It will cost us millions of dollars just to get them an EMR, and we don't have millions of dollars, and if we have it, we have the opiate crises, we have mental health, we have a lot of other things that we need to take care of. So there is an enormous amount of potential cultural shift that we need to make in the, the state where we actually ask the question, what is the outcome we're looking for right. and how do we get there and do we already have the infrastructure in place to get us there or do we have to go back and take some away and mm -hmm. rebuild right. because we can't, one of the things I've noticed as people legislate in the state is that they find a problem, you know, uh, we don't have enough supportive housing. One of the problems just to stay on the mental health hospitals, they are running at 98% occupancy. Yeah. Hospitals cannot survive at 98% occupancy. They're losing nurses. They are literally in a crisis state every single day. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons they're at 98% occupancy is that they have between 150 and 200 patients that should be discharged, but there's nowhere for them to go yeah. because there's not supportive housing. So we funded $5 million of supported housing through finance last year in the HHR subcommittee. They haven't gotten into the housing yet. It's being run through the bureaucrats who are trying to figure out how to do it because it's in a different silo that usually manages housing. And so you can't just throw money at a problem and you can't just pick one piece of the problem and say, that's all we need to do. You really look, need to look at the whole scope of where do we need to be on spending? What do we need to be doing to serve the citizens right. of Virginia? Because it's not the same game right. as it was when these agencies were set up 50, 60, 80, 100 years ago. Right. So that brings me to another kind of overreaching point that I have for legis legislating, and that is that I really think we need to be looking at strategic plans. You can't go in and say, this year I'm going to fix this, right. uh, this year I'm going to um, you know, fix the hospitals and leave everything else idle right. when it's already not where it needs to be. You have to say, okay, if I'm going to have this much money over the next six years or three to five biennial budgets, how? what is the low-hanging fruit? How do I prioritize everything that needs to be done? How do I get it done piecemeal so that I have a strategic way to get to the most important issues? And can I find money within by restructuring? Can right. I find money without? Yeah. How can I solve these problems? So we need strategic planning. 
and right. legislators mean well, but we're legislators. Right. Bureaucrats mean well, we're part-time, so yeah. we're not even there full-time. Bureaucrats mean well, but but there are cultures that have existed there that, that make it so that we want to sustain the status quo. Mm -hmm. And there are some people that aren't change agents yeah. and they don't see the vision and maybe they haven't been in the private sector and they haven't seen what we've seen. And so there are, there's a lot of passive resistance to culture shift. And dear God, don't we all know that after culture shifts we've made in the hospital right. and in our offices is just like medicine, mm -hmm. except further behind. Right. And so, so we need strategic planning. We need to make sure we've got the right people, subject matter experts doing it. Mm -hmm. And um, and then, you know, we need to kind of collaborate and come together and figure out how we can solve some of these problems. And, and to some of those problems, you know, Medicaid has been an issue for, for the last, um, well, for frankly, the last 10 to 15 years at least, um, we've had a significant amount of increase in, in the allotment for our budget. Uh, but yet there's still a need to expand Medicaid, provide greater coverage. There's a lot of opportunities, whether it's the 1115 waiver, expansion, provider assessment tax. How do you envision, particularly with the new administration and maybe the change in the elections last Tuesday, what do you envision as the pathway for that, uh, whether it's coverage or additional money uh, to the state from the, from the federal folks? Um, what is your expectation for the next four years? So I, I have um, not been totally quiet about this. I'm still playing my cards a little close to the vest because we have some political things that we need to work out. And um, not everything at the General Assembly runs on the value of a good idea alone. And so I, you know, but I've got, I've been building a lot of consensus for this. First of all, block grants exist and they have for a long time and states received block grants even before there was the Affordable Care Act. And uh, as you know, I've had lots of conversations with Republicans who are opposed to expanding Medicaid, mostly because they didn't like the strings that are attached. I think that's a good point. If you think about it, we have been told for eight years, it is either this yeah. or it is this. Right. You expand and you do everything we say, and maybe we'll give you some waivers if we think you have a really good plan. But or you do nothing. Right. I, I don't accept that. Right. I, you know, I'm a physician. There's never only two answers. And so I think that we can go to there. I want to to really take a good hard look at what we're doing and how we're doing it in Virginia. And I want to be really creative. And I'd like to go to the federal government and get a block grant. And I'd like to look at what issues we need to serve and not accept their definition of what that needs to be. Mm -hmm. But I think that we're going to be negotiating with the federal government for, for more money. I believe that block grants will go through Congress. I believe Congress will find out of financial necessity, if nothing else, mm -hmm. a way to block grant and capitate states. If Virginia is the if Virginia is subject to that rubric based on how we have drawn down dollars thus far, right. we will be a day late and a dollar short and we're already behind. But that doesn't mean that's all we need to do. Medicaid mm -hmm. expansion isn't the answer either. Mm -hmm. And so we need to figure out a way for us to really do a deep, long, hard look. How do we make sure people in the Southwest have access? Do we, do we need, how do we, how do we get penetration out there? How do we get compliance? You know, yeah. some states have health savings accounts right. where patients, if they keep their A1C and their blood pressure in the right zone because they're compliant with their medications, to keep a little skin in the game at the end of the year. Right. They put a little in, they keep a little extra. Right. You know, there's there's an enormous amount of best practices nationwide that if we had health economists looking at our issues in Virginia, 
and how we need to solve them, we could come up with some really good strategies. We don't have to recreate the wheel, but we do have to recreate ourselves. Right, right. That's a great point. Um, certificate of public need. Uh, it's been a, a, a conversation for at least the last three years at the General Assembly. An excruciating one. It has been very difficult, and we've all been part of that. And I'll just point out a couple things. Physician fees really only account for about eight cents of the healthcare dollar. And we are seeing physicians who are struggling where they have a surgery center and they want to do an endoscopy or colonoscopy. And based on not having the uh, surgery center license as an ambulatory surgery center through COPN, their inability to see that patient in the surgery suite, be it a CMS patient, is limited. They don't receive the facility fee, so they can't charge that additional cost uh, for having that patient in their surgery suite. Yet, that facility fee would be significantly lower than where the patient's going now in the hospital facility fee. Things like that are very frustrating for physicians. They're looking to get MRIs. They're looking to access, uh, to have greater access to care for their patients. What do you say to some of those physicians on COPN? And it's not an easy answer. It's a very complex situation. Uh, but they're very much interested in trying to push for reform. And how do you envision that happening, whether it's this year or the next four years? And what can physicians do to get involved on that issue? Boy, I wish this was an easy issue. Um, but it's not. Right. Um, it's just simply not black and white. And on the one hand, if we could make some of these market shifts, it would lower costs for patients, especially in light of the fact that patients have really high deductibles now. And a lot of this front money comes, sometimes all of it, yeah. comes out of their deductible. Uh, it would help us keep more physicians in private practice. I'm an employed physician myself now, very much as a result of the changes in the healthcare marketplace as a result of the Affordable Care Act. And I, that's one of the reasons I ran for office because that infuriates me. Mm -hmm. I really would like to be the owner of my own business and I'd like to see more physicians be able to stay in that situation. Right. So I, as you well know, did just about everything I could have in the last two years from looking at a rural hospital relief fund to looking at using uh, sales tax exemption dollars to draw down, looked at just about every which way I could I could make this seesaw work. Mm -hmm. And I haven't figured it out in the context of the way things are now. Yeah. And some of the confounding variables that make me hesitant, I, I believe that every piece of legislation you write and pass has unintended consequences. Right. Sometimes they're not remarkable and sometimes they're severe. Any, any problem I can solve without legislation, I prefer to right. solve problems that way. But having said that, one of I, I am uncertain about the full extent of the consequences of changing COPN completely to a free market situation. And here's the historical context I have. There's nobody around anymore that can say this is the gospel truth, but we know we all get paid less than a dollar for a dollar's work on Medicaid. Hospitals get paid, I think it's up to 72 cents now on the dollar. It was 67 cents until last year. And we've raised that, and, and I'm told that they are compensating for that deficit in their fees by having access and exclusive access to a certain extent to services that make their business model balance financially. We, mm -hmm. all, we all know that. We all do that. We all know that for a long time, hospitals have 
received far more in the reimbursements they get from private sector. We all say, well, we're helping pay for that, right? right because our right. premiums are higher. But there's a part about these services that figures into that too. Mm -hmm. So, um, and don't think our hospitals are homogeneous. If you look out at Augusta, yeah. they have 7% Medicaid, and yet they've developed their entire business model based on the premise of COPN. And if they lose certain services, and they serve that community extensively with a lot of losing services, you know, services that lose a lot of money for them. So I, I haven't figured out how to fix this yet, except to say mm -hmm. that if we start from scratch with healthcare, mm -hmm. then we can redefine what the reimbursement rate is for the hospitals. Everybody compares us to Maryland. They say, well, Maryland has all these outpatient radiology, radiology centers that are so expensive. Right. But, but Maryland hospitals have received a dollar for a dollar in Medicaid mm -hmm. since they've had Medicaid. Right. They've always had the money to get fully reimbursed, and so they didn't need anything else to right. offset their business model. So that's not an apples to apples either. So I think the answer is sitting down with health economists and a strategy and lay out this issue and say, this is a cost in healthcare. We want mm -hmm. to make it accessible out in the public and not confined to certain areas. How do we balance our marketplace? Look, we've all endured, you know, absolute um, earthquakes mm -hmm. in how we've survived. If you talk to Barclay Zimmerman, yeah. he hasn't had a raise since 1982. Tell yeah. me any other sector right. where a highly skilled, indebted individual who had to train to get there right. never has a chance to offset yeah. any of that risk or cost. Yeah. So. I don't want to cause another earthquake, right. but I'm perfectly willing. I want that marketplace phenomenon. Yeah. So I'm working on it. But for me, I think the answer is going to be in the, in the global realignment. Understood. Mm -hmm. um, let's talk a little bit about nurse practitioners and, and just mid-level providers in general. You know, we've seen in the past um, optometrists who look to do surgery, nurse practitioners practicing independently. Um, and, and the training and education hasn't always been ident identical to a physician or um, another colleague, particularly another healthcare provider. What do you uh, believe is the step forward in helping um, provide greater access to these patients, but also maintaining high quality and standards and, and not perhaps limiting um, um, nurse practitioners from doing what they can, which is excellent work, but also not perhaps letting them out on the, uh, uh, the loose reins where they have no connection with a physician. Do you see that as a potential change for the future, but, but nothing that, that causes independent practice? So I, I come to this conversation with my previous experience, which is watching the um, conversations and negotiations to get us where we are today, mm -hmm. which is a, a collaborative relationship where the physician's not on site as they used to be and they can manage many nurse practitioners. In fact, we even set a pilot program to create that collaboration through telemedicine yeah. out in the Southwest. So this is, this is, there are two sides to this conversation. And the first part of the conversation I have is ask the right question. The right question is not in the, to me, in the United States of America, my license says I have this scope and Virginia won't let me have it. Mm -hmm. 
that's a conversation that we're never going to resolve because it's kind of a meaningless premise, right? right? I mean, right. we're codified in Virginia for what you do. If you want to be in Virginia, those are the rules. Yeah. And um, your license nationally is only relevant within the context of the code as it exists in Virginia. So that argument for me is frustrating. Believe me, I meet with nurse practitioners all the time. I'm a target, they're on me. And my answer is always, in Virginia, we have a historical approach to this. And the mm -hmm. historical approach is that I don't serve as your mediator. Mm -hmm. I'm not gonna be on one side or the other. We currently have a fragile, as I previously alluded to, medical marketplace. Yeah. We have physicians that spent many years in school with significant debt that have invested in private small businesses mm -hmm. and they are trying to make ends meet and for me to disrupt that marketplace by giving somebody who has less investment in that process the ability to function side by side and compete with them, I'm not going to change the status quo in order to do that unless there's a collaboration and a consensus mm -hmm. between the physicians and the nurses. And that's not, that has nothing to do with what other states to do. That's a Virginia specific yeah. answer, but that's how we've done it. And I'm not gonna be the mediator. And I say to them, look, you're going to individual legislators and you want them to champion it mm -hmm. without getting consensus right. between the two parties first. And that is not how we should be doing things. We should not be a sledgehammer in the General Assembly. Mm -hmm. We should be a convener and we mm -hmm. should get consensus and something like that. So from the political standpoint, consensus has to be reached. Gotcha. The real question to ask is, how do we serve our citizens? Right. Do we have the manpower to do that? We, we haven't gotten to a point where, you know, now in certain regions we do. Right. And let's remember that when we changed the, the definition of how nurse practitioners and physicians collaborated before, we did it on the premise that we were going to have a new insurgence of workforce into the areas where we couldn't get physicians to go. Mm -hmm. It didn't happen. Mm -hmm. Instead, we had MediClinics pop up in direct competition with pediatricians and primary care providers in our most populated areas that dissected continuity of care. Pediatricians didn't know when their, when their patients had been treated for a titus media or strep throat or what that pattern was in relevance to a tonsillectomy. And right. we, we had more compromise of quality of care and no improved access because we were creating access where we already had it. Right. Right. So to me, the, the question goes back to what does Virginia need? I like to call this health opportunity. Health opportunity encompasses all of those, those um, the social determinants of health. They're mm -hmm. talking about housing, they're talking about food and diet, they're talking about education. You know, we're talking about all of those things that contribute to a healthy workforce and a healthy population, which is what we want in Virginia. Right. And so I'm tired of talking about, and I call it, which pocket does the dollar go in? Right. And there's a little bit of that in COPN, let's be frank. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, I'm tired of having those conversations at the General Assembly. We have really important things we need to do, and I need the entire team, the entire healthcare team on the same page working together and not looking at how they can get a market advantage by right. legislating against or for one right. another. Right. So, I'll read a few things on the opioid crisis, just some statistics, and you've been a great champion on the opioid crisis, and we still have a lot of work to do. I think the physician community and all healthcare providers understand that, including policymakers. Uh, the first one is the number of patients receiving opioid prescriptions dropped by about 40% in the first quarter following the enactment of the regulations from last year, which we were able to implement together, uh, regulations specific to acute, 
chronic and post-surgical uh, pain, which we all identified, look, uh, opioids um, being prescribed is not the same for a patient who goes in for a chronic illness versus uh, somebody from post-surgery. Uh, um, the second is prescriptions uh, over 100 MME dropped over 18% from 2016 to 17 after the enactment of, of regu the regulations. PMP checks have gone up about 188% from 2014 to 2016. There's still work to be done. What do you envision for this year and the, and the coming years uh, on things we can do together to, to still solve this opioid crisis? So the, the opioid crisis that we're looking at in Virginia is kind of a bisected issue, right? So on the one hand, most of the things that you're talking about there are our interventions to make sure we do not continue along the path that helped create the crisis. So we know that 70% of people with opiate addiction started that addiction with a prescription. So we're trying to make sure we don't prescribe for everybody else out there that's not currently addicted and create those addictions again. Mm -hmm. um, and I, there may be changes on that horizon. The, the best practices that I've seen based on, so here's, the, here's always a snack for physicians. The fact of the matter is the only constant in medicine is change. And we are, we are strongly motivated by our anecdotal experience, right? I've always written this many, this many um, Percocets for somebody after they've had a delivery or a right. C-section. Right. This is what I do, and I haven't had any problems, right. anecdotal. Science tells us that for people who are prone to opiate addiction, if they take a prescription for five days or more, the likelihood that they're gonna get addicted exponentially increases. If that's our best medicine or our best science, I say we need to humble ourselves and we need to limit our prescribing to five days. You see the patient back, you make another decision. Not everybody is prone to addiction, but we can't identify who is. Mm -hmm. And you know, I think that we've all got to challenge our, our, where, our, where we are now with our perception of pain and pain management. Right. We have been penalized if our patients ever complained of, of having pain. Right. And let's just think about that for a minute. From all we know from healing and inflammation and the process and life and you know the life you live, life is not pain-free. Healing, right. pain is part of healing. Excruciating, unbearable pain, pain that you're you know that is accompanying dying and you know chronic issues, chronic pain that is already established that we have to find a way to manage. Those are different subjects. Right. But pain from surgery, pain from an injury. We need to be very circumspect about how often we're prescribing and how much. So I'm waiting to see. We have some great um, experts in mm -hmm. the state of Virginia. As you know, I've reached out to the Department of Health Professions, mm -hmm. to the Virginia Department of Health, and to DMAS, right. and to MSV. Right. And I've asked you guys to convene every year. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that happened last year for me is that when this legislation came forward and I was shown the science, and I said, okay, we're gonna limit prescribing to seven days, there was an uproar amongst physicians because they weren't in the same place I was with mm -hmm. what the science was and what the crises was because why they're buried at work taking care of their patients and doing their labs and it's hard to see the big picture. Mm -hmm. So I had to be the intermediary. Mm -hmm. I had to be the one to stand to the ground and have the conversations in the midst of session. I wanted those conversations to happen before session. 
Let's all have a conversation. Let's reach consensus about what's best for our physician, our, our patients. I don't know if that's going to happen this year mm -hmm. because we had the election and there mm -hmm. were, it was a new idea. Yeah. And so I think that I know that David Brown over at Department of Health Professions is pursuing it and he's reaching out to the administration to find out what legislation they're looking at ahead of time. We'll talk to Mishka Turplin, who's kind of our statewide yeah. subject matter expert. And we'll, we'll have uh, something that we know well in advance of January where I walk in and say, hey, will you carry right. this bill? Right. So that's on the prescribing side. The other half of this whole problem is we have an enormous number of people who are addicted. Right. They now are getting fewer prescriptions. Yeah. They are turning to heroin, which even if they can get prescriptions is less expensive than mm -hmm. the prescription drugs. And we have heroin that's being laced with all car fentanyl, mm -hmm. which, you know, the ele elephant tranquilizers, everybody mm -hmm. likes to call it. We've had reports of as many as nine ampules of naloxone being necessary to resuscitate somebody from a um, car fentanyl overdose. Nine. Yeah. I don't even know if all of the ambulances carry nine right. ampules of right. naloxone. We keep asking that. Right. We make sure right. everybody has right. it. We've had to change all of our policies and procedures. Talk about cost. We've had to change all of our policies and procedures in the forensic lab at the state because they can't be alone in there identifying the substances anymore mm -hmm. because if they inadvertently get exposed to the carfentanil, somebody has to be there to give them Narcan. Right. So it's more cost. I mean, this changes everything. Yeah. But down to the point of what do we do now? Well, we have to treat and we mm -hmm. have to have access. And MSV was very instrumental, as was the Department of Health and our own Hughes Melton over the Department right. of Health out there really training the workforce. Yeah. People could have insurance coverage for addiction services and they couldn't get care right. in Virginia because we didn't have anybody trained. Right. Right. And so we've, we've, we've really, really accelerated that process so that they're available. We got a waiver from the federal government. It used to be you couldn't have more than, I think it was 10 yeah. detox beds in one location. I have no idea why the federal government decided right. that, but who knows. Yeah. But now we have as many as 150 beds mm -hmm. coming in at Richmond. So we're, we're trying to build access now we have to figure out how do we pay for it. Right. Some people have insurance. Some people qualify for Medicaid. Maybe if we end up getting a block grant, maybe one of the things we need to think about is, is does that become an eligibility criteria for Medicaid? Yeah. Yeah. And, um, but we, we need to get them care. We need to get them treatment. We have the treatment. We have the services. We have them through managed care organizations so that the, the actual reimbursement. That was one of the really great things that DMAS did is that they negotiated with the insurance companies to mandate that they pay more than the market rate to provide those services so we could actually incentivize physicians right. to do it. We yeah. couldn't do that by law, we couldn't right. do that by code, but we could with contract. Correct. So that's the kind of creative stuff that we need to be thinking about. Something else that I've been aware of is that we have, um, darn it, um, I think it's called collegiate, um, recovery. I mean, it's called Collegiate Recovery Scholarships. Texas has an incredibly robust program. If you look at, we don't have any, again, back to data. We don't have mm -hmm. any data. We don't know how many kids that are committing, that are having overdoses and dying from the overdoses are, um, are actually in college yeah. because the colleges don't have to report and report that. But we know that a vast majority of them are 19 to 25, yeah. which is college age, college age. So we've got these the Collegiate Recovery scholarships exist mm -hmm. and with that scholarship you get your money if your urine drug testing is negative you stay in your 12-step programs you're incentivized to stay clean and you get to have some money to go to school right um rams in recovery for instance down at vcu has this going texas has a robust program across all of their universities we may need to incentivize our universities 
to transition some of their yeah. um, some of their uh, grant money and mm -hmm. money that's available for scholarship to recovery scholarships. That's something that we could do. That's a little piece of things, but well, that's what I need. I need you guys thinking. Mm -hmm. I need us all looking as parents mm -hmm. and citizens and physicians and community people. What the hell are we going to do about this? Because yeah. it cannot go on the way right, it is. Right. So let's just finish up with um, politics. So last Tuesday, as you as you know, the um, House uh, has now flipped to fifty-one forty-nine. Republicans in charge of the majority still, but drastic change from sixty-six to thirty-four. Right. Senate's twenty-one nineteen. What is your take a little bit on the elections, and, and what is what is your opinion of the wave of transition, and how do you envision that uh, you know changing what your what your plan is for the session, and then for the next four years in working with Dr. Norland? Well, um, as far as the election is concerned, I, I think it's not that much of a surprise. I mean, we've seen midterms before, right? Obama lost a thousand state legislature seats in his midterm elections after he was elected. I think that um, nobody was expecting 71% of the presidential Democratic uh, turnout to turn out for gubernatorial elections. Never happened before. It's so interesting that Ed Gillespie got um, more than 100,000 more votes than, than Terry McAuliffe got when he was elected, more than McDonald ever got. The Republicans turned out, they were just swamped. Yeah. It's remarkable that the exit polls say, especially for somebody like Doc O'Bannon, this wasn't personal. These were people who maybe didn't even know who yeah. their delegate was. Right. But they came out to vote D across the board. My, my assessment of this is that this was an election of emotion and not an election of policy. And I, I mean, definitely for me, I am here because I'm interested in policy. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not terribly interested in the politics and the word spin. I really find authentic so much more refreshing. Yeah. And so for me, you know, the idea that, that everything's gonna become more politicized, I, I will tell you, um, it is, it is beneath us, the conversations that occur now. People, because they're a Republican, are a white supremacist. I'm actually a traitor to all womankind. Did you know that? I am. <laughs> and so, you know, I mean, the, the, you know, these are the kinds of things that people say it's all identity politics. I have an enormous disdain for identity politics. In fact, I've withdrawn my endorsement for a Republican mm -hmm. because my name was used in, in connection with identity politics. If we can't talk about policy, yeah. then it's just all personal and it's ugly and it's opinion and it's trashing each other. And a lot of that happened this time. Yeah. Yeah. And so I don't know what's going to happen with that. I hope people have enough dignity to move away from mm -hmm. it. I'm going to stay focused on policy. Having said that, I think there's a value in, I'm in the Senate, right? We're yeah. 2119. I think there's a value in having to talk to other people. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I think there's a significant value in having a different party control the legislature than the you know, I don't think it's a good idea, certainly not for me, yeah. for the Democrats to have control over the legislature and the um, state house. Then I won't be able to get anything done. Right. right. So I hope that we maintain that balance of power. I hope that the conversations get far more focused on what we need to do for Virginia. I hope legislators recognize they're not subject matter experts and they bring in some strategists mm -hmm. to make some plans so we can do some meaningful things with a little bit of money we yeah. have. 
Um, and I hope we can we can hope we can plan longitudinally. We're looking at that for higher ed too. We yeah. have an organization that's willing to come in and look at a strategic financial plan for higher ed for the next yeah. many years. So yeah. I, I hope we see those cultural shifts. I hope and think that Ralph is interested in some of the analysis of how things work mm -hmm. and the openness to even though it's uncomfortable we might have to change this is this is not a um, preserve at all cost kind of right. environment we're in. Right. right. So I guess that's my analysis. I'm brokenhearted that Doc's not there. Yeah. He was an enormous asset. He knew more about healthcare than most anybody else that I know. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, so it's it's a huge loss for all of Virginia. Yeah. I think many of those seats will be won back in two years, mm -hmm. and you know we'll see the pendulum swing. And that's just, this is politics. Yeah. First thing I was told when I thought about going in is this is a combat sport. It is. Get a helmet. It's contact sport. Yeah. I mean yeah. combat. Right, right, contact. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, you're thoughtful. You're refreshing. We really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Um, and can't wait to to work with you this session Thanks. and many more. And thank you for your support for the mm -hmm. position. Well, of course. Um, you know, I'm I'm happy to be up there and champion. Thank you so much. So, you're welcome. Thanks for all. Good seeing you. Thanks. Thanks.